So because we had the joint ABF last week, I suppose both last week and this week are all up for grabs. So, um, and since we're dealing with eschatology and the return of the Lord, I imagine there'll be a lot of questions. I want to say up front that I may punt, um, and I apologize if, if, all, if I don't have the level of particularity and precision that you're looking for. I would like to try to limit primarily our discussion to Luke and not eschatology at large. So if we can limit it to what Jesus talks about in Luke, I would appreciate that. But anyway, questions, thoughts, fire away. Okay, then we can go home. Oh, Greg. Oh, Greg's sweet. I have a very general question. Why were the disciples so dense <laughs> when it came to hearing very simply stated specific future, the answers to their questions? Why was it that they couldn't get it? Now, I realize they didn't have the Holy Spirit as we do, but anybody would seem, when, when the Lord says, I'm going to have to die and suffer, you'd think that'd be fairly easy to grasp. I don't, we're not told in Luke why here yet. In other places, we're explicitly told that this was hidden from them. So Luke doesn't give us that answer, but at least in some places in the Gospels, I think, um, I think that's how John, th John 2 works. Let me take a look. I could be wrong. But uh, I know that in some instances we're explicitly told. Um, uh, um, no, that doesn't say that. Um, some, okay, someone wants to find one. So part of it, Greg, while, while Al looks at that, part of it is God's work at not letting them figure some of the things out beforehand. And some of it is we've got to grapple with sort of this national identity. I mean, they have all their lives been living as the underdog. They've all their lives been living as this puny little nation relegated to be a footnote in current world history. And yet, as they read their Old Testament, they're a big mover and shaker and a powerhouse. The Queen of Sheba came and, and, and gave homage to them. And they're just this little Roman province. And so holding on to that hope, that nationalistic hope of, of the future glory of Israel, the restoration, that's huge. And you've been holding on to that all your life, looking forward to it, looking forward to it. And then, I'm the Messiah, but I'm going to die. I mean, John the Baptist wrestled with it in jail. Jesus wasn't doing the things he was expecting him to do. And Jesus doesn't say, doesn't give him a clear answer. All Jesus' answer to John the Baptist is, no, you're not mistaken, I am the guy, trust me. So I think that's part of it. The other part is God supernaturally not letting them figure some of the stuff out. And what you don't see is when the disciples gather in the upper room, I can hardly wait till Sunday. They're not doing that. They're just completely dejected. They're completely broken and confused. Um, have we found one of the passages that I was... What? Uh, yeah. Well, that's John 6. I'm thinking of... Um, yeah, I'm thinking of actually a passage where it says that God didn't... Like, it was hidden from them. Like, so I'll just look up hidden on my phone. Hold on. Hidden them. Hidden them. 
16 times. Gospels, Matthew, um, Luke. Luke 18:34. So actually it does show up a little later in Luke. Go to Luke 18. Um, So this is, this is probably the best, most direct answer for you, Greg, and this is the answer Luke gives in 18. So I think at this point, we don't know why they don't understand. But in Luke 18, I'll start in 31. And taking the 12, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Now that is the most crystal clear statement in Luke thus far. But they understood none of these things. This, hidden, this saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So they didn't grasp it, they didn't understand it, and some third party hid it from them. And presumably, I'm taking that as a divine passive, that's God hiding it from them, because back in chapter 10, no, that's the narrator speaking. So Jesus spoke, the Son of Man will be delivered over, and then the narrator jumps in, but they did not understand. These things were hidden from them. So the narrator, Luke, is speaking. But in, in Luke 10, when he does his first major parable, the parable of the sower, the disciples come to him and, no, it's nine, sorry, nine, Luke nine. Um, or is it eight? Good grief, I'm all over the place this morning. It's eight, sorry. Told you. Verse nine, and the disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But to others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. So Jesus freely admits, now, now go to 10 or 11. Um, Jesus freely admits that part of what he's doing is obfuscating, covering things up, making them hard to see. And he's also illuminating and making things clear. And the passage that was the springboard for our four-week series on election and predestination is when the 70 return in chapter 10, verse 21 in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise of understanding. So when in chapter 18, these things were hidden from them, based on what Jesus says in 10, I'm going to assume it's God the Father hiding it from them for a time. Um, these things were hidden, these things from the wise of understanding, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So part of it is just there. They're so built onto this idea for so long, they have a hard time letting it go. We see a bit of that with Peter, with, with eating food, because Peter's the one who gets the vision of the, the sheep coming down with the animals, arise, kill, and eat. And yet in Galatians, Paul talks about how Peter even would play the hypocrite when certain people from Jerusalem would come down and they wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. So, so Peter, of all people, should know, don't call unclean what God's called clean. And Peter himself is waffling because this is your national identity. You don't eat this stuff. It makes you dirty. It makes you unclean. And so I can imagine it takes a while to get used to this new idea um, of, of it's okay. Um, should I tell this story or not? I won't. Okay. Um, microphone in the back. Kevin. Kevin needs a microphone. Oh, sir. 
this is probably where you don't want to go, but this, <laughs> this question is just looming in my mind, and part of it is because I don't quite maybe understand uh, exactly how tribulation and, mm -hmm. and rapture and all that stuff ha is going to happen, but uh, you had mentioned that this is not the rapture. Yes. And so this sounds like tribulation. Yes, so, sir. I'm assuming, from my understanding, that the rapture happens prior to this. Yes, that's that's the uh, that's the reading. So of this when church. when you're talking yeah. about separate the sheep from the goats, what what's being separated? In the survivors from the Battle of Armageddon. In uh, in we'll go to, go to Zechariah 14. In Zechariah 14. Um, there are survivors from that battle who go up year after year. So yeah, let's go. Let's go to Zechariah. If you start in Matthew, go two books back, and Malachi um, is short. Zechariah is fourteen chapters, good size. Um, and all of chat, and, we, and if, if you're interested in going further, I taught through Zechariah a couple of years ago, and so the messages are online. But all of chapters 12 through 14 deal with this time period. Um, so 12, 1 begins, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Um, and it speaks of, you'll see that whole on that day. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and formed the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against the Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem. Go to verse 4. On that day, verse 6. On that day, verse 8. On that day, verse 9. On that day, verse 11. On that day. You get the idea. We're talking about a day. It's the day of the Lord. And you go down to 14. And we get a zoomed-in look. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil um, taken when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken, the houses plundered, the women raped. Half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. I believe it's that that Jesus is telling them: Get if you can. If you got time, go. Avoid that if you can. I think that's what he's talking about. Then you keep going. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies beyond Jerusalem on the east. Interestingly enough, where did Jesus ascend to heaven from? Mount of Olives. What did the angels say? In the same way you saw him depart, he will return. Touchdown point for the returned Lord is Mount of Olives. Um, the Mount of Olives will be split in two from the east to the west uh, by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward, the other half southward, and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Izal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So now this is Revelation 20. The Lord coming with his army, his holy army with him, what we read earlier. On that day there shall be no cold, Light, there shall be no light, cold or frost. There shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer and winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one, the whole land. And now we're going to see the geographic transformation 
of this desert, that land shall be turned into a plain from Reba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepress, and it shall be inhabited. By the way, you get the idea this is a real geographic place. If you want to spiritualize this, you're going to have a hard time. Well, the winepress represents. Now, th- this is geography talking about here. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord strikes the people that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they're still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Interestingly, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, Steven Spielberg, who is a Jew, I think envisions this as the plague that he envisions happening on those who dare open the ark be my guess, but I'm guessing that's where he got that from. Could be wrong. Um, on that day, a great planet for the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of another and even Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected gold, silver garments in great abundance. A plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in their camps. Which finally gets us to 16. Then... Everyone who survives, so as cataclysmic and apocalyptic as this is, there are survivors. Everyone who survives of all the nations. So this isn't just this isn't Jewish people in view here. Everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. That is where I understand the, the great judgment of lamb and sheep and goats takes place. You know, so as these survivors of the nations, I mean, not everybody's going to be in this army. They're going to be people left at home, right? They're going to be people who are mothers and children and people who are too old and too young. To, there'll be people who are not gathered around Jerusalem, and they're going to be judged. Um, and, and go into your reward. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats, go to judgment and damnation. That, that's my understanding of things. So I think that, that may be the judgment spoken of, or it could be the, the third of the city being, when I said I wasn't sure which one it is, the two-in-one bed. I'm not sure whether it's referring to that separation of the goats and the sheep or whether it's the one-third being killed, one-third being taken captive. Go. So this really is, isn't, uh, for lack of a better word, preparing us for what that's going to be because if we have already made that choice and trusted, we're, we're not going to need to be ready to go. Right. Neither, right. neither were the thousands of people Jesus was talking to 2,000 years ago. But he still thought it would profit it to tell them. Which is why in the message I said, look, the best way to understand this is whoever's alive at that time who thinks of themselves as a disciple, and there will be. After the rapture, the angel goes out and preaches the gospel and, and people convert. There will be disciples in that day. This is the instructions for them. And we can still learn from those instructions. So Jesus gave it to an audience who's been dead for 2,000 years. And we can still profit from them, which is why I pointed out even in the very first thing he says to them is you'll long to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you won't. So he's already recognizing you won't see my second coming. So when he talks about when on that day run, he's talking to a sort of universal you who's alive then. He's already identified it's not these people. And so here's the instructions for whoever it is, is in and around Jerusalem who would identify themselves as a disciple on that day. Here's what they should do. Does that make sense? That's Paul, when he talks about the gathering together of the Lord, speaks about it as a revelation of a mystery. There's a sense in which this, the clarity on these topics is progressive. And Jesus is not speaking. In the, Jesus in the Gospels isn't talking about the rapture. He's also not really talking about the church much. He mentions the church in Matthew. 
Tell it to the church, on this rock I'll build my church. But there's not a whole lot of church talk in the Gospels. He's mainly dealing with Israel. And Paul talks about the church is a mystery. So in the progression of Revelation, it's problematic to try to take categories that come later in the Revelation and try to fit them in here. Jesus is looking specifically at on that day. Similar to the day the ark shut, similar to the day Lot left Sodom and Gomorrah, on that day, if you're in the field, run. On that day, if you're on top of your house, don't go down inside. Whoever is alive on that day, that's for them. Does that, that make sense? And I don't think there's a ton more clarity that he's offering. Um, that he's, it's a very narrow focus on what he's talking to. And so then we have to piece it together and fit it together with Thessalonians and other books that help give us some, okay, if we're making a timeline, it's like this, like this, like this. But if you're alive on that day, here's what you need to do. Jim. So this is at the end of the tribulation. After the two witnesses appear, after the 144,000. By harmonizing this with the rest of the New Testament, yes. You're not going to get that from Luke, though, is all I'm saying. As far as Jesus' clarity thus far, we we know nothing of that yet. With the rest of the New Testament, yes. Shedding light onto it, yes. There could be tens of thousands, millions of disciples by that time. Oh, yeah. Yes. Plenty of time for people to come to faith. Plenty of time for people. We know they're and be persecuted. And do you think that this, the event of the nations raging against Israel, do you, do you also think God will use that as a turning point in Israel coming to faith in, oh, I know he in will. mass? I know he will. Back to Zechariah 12. Okay. Back to Zechariah 12. One of my favorite passages, I mean, I get, I get goosebumps when I read this. With the specificity of prophecy, it's remarkable. Um, Zechariah chapter 12. We're just in 14, so maybe maybe you're still there. But in 12, um, we get this, verse 10. So the context in 12 is he's all the nations have gathered around Jerusalem. Okay, let me show you that. Verse 2 of 12. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I'll make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. Um, So we're talking about a siege around Jerusalem where all the nations gather. And in 14, we're looking at the battle. In 12, we're looking at something different. So jump down to um, verse 10. This is absolutely stunning prophecy. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So, so get the context. Jerusalem is it's in, the, it's in the 12th hour. They're surrounded. They're cut off. They've got an overwhelmingly powerful army. Uh, there's no hope. The breach of the walls may have already begun, as we've seen in in chapter 14, because a third of the people are going to fall and a third are going to be taken captive. So that might have already started. That's taking place. And God says, I'll pour out in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace, pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. So they're looking on him, they're looking on me. First off, that's the first point. So here this individual they're looking on is, is distinct from God and yet is identified as God. He's him and he's me. What's, what's that? And he's pierced. Hundreds of years before the crucifixion, here's a pierced Savior who's looked upon, and by looking upon in faith, they're saved. 
They will look upon him, on me, on him whom they've pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one beeps, weeps over a firstborn. And then what we get actually is a description of the salvation of Israel. So what's going to happen is Israel is going to have a mass conversion in this 12th hour. They're going to get it. We killed our Messiah. We put him to death. And they're going to mourn and humble themselves and weep and lament. And then, according to chapter 14, that very same Messiah will come back and fight for them and destroy his enemies. So that's, so no, absolutely, this pressure cooker, this boiling pot, which I think is the picture like a pressure cooker, is precisely the context in which God, notice it's a sovereign work of God. It's not suddenly these people use their free will. That you, I will pour out grace. God pours out grace and Israel sees, oh no, what have we done? And they weep and they lament and they mourn and they convert. And now, as a believing people, God will defend them. While they remain unbelieving, they're just getting cursed and battered about. But once they come to faith in their Messiah, their Messiah will come and fight for them. That's, that's my reading of, of the text. So absolutely, uh, the, this is the context in which, which is why I think also Jesus' instructions are given to Jewish people even in here, because when he repeats it in 21, when you see Jerusalem surrounded, I mean... <laughs> This is really mostly applicable to people in that geographic region. And what we understand is the vast majority, if not all of Israel, I mean, in, in Romans 11, that in this way, all of Israel will be saved. All might mean every single last one. All might mean such an overwhelming majority that you're describing. You can say all of them, whichever one it is. I'm, I'm not entirely sure um, how to read that. But Israel, all of Israel will be Christian. So... <laughs> They're, they're going to be feeling the pressure at this point. So, so Jesus gives these instructions to whoever's alive at that time, but there'll be the converts from around the world and Israel will all be present when this happens. Back to your point, Kevin. So who's going to be alive then? Israel and those in the nations who've come to faith through the gospel that was preached according to Revelation, I think, 14, when 144 witnesses, 144,000 witnesses go out. Well, they're preaching an everlasting gospel, and people are getting saved by this message. So there, there are converts worldwide of the nations, and those who I think are the people who, if the nations go in, the people from the nations who, who came to faith who... Oh, yeah. Well, just in Israel, a third killed and a third raped and taken captive. So two-thirds of Jerusalem is, you know, one-third's dead, the other third's taken captive until... Messiah comes. So, yeah, oh yeah. They're, they're going to get singed before they get delivered. It's, you know, it's not just going to be no, no, no pressure at all. It's going to be a rough time. And this, Jesus refers to this as the time of the day of Jacob's distress. So, it's going to be rough. Um, for, now, Greg, and then Mike. Oh, Renee, Renee first. Renee, ladies first. Renee, go. Okay, I don't think this is eschatology. Um, when you said how we're crying out, how long, O oh Lord, how long? Mm -hmm. um, I thought of Revelations 24, but first I'll read Revelations 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O oh Lord, Lord you, holy and true, until you avenge, judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Mm. Well, that made me think of Revelations 24. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. Um, is that a li literal beheading? 
Or does that just mean that Jesus is our head and we look to him as our head? Well, I suspect whether or not, I, I definitely, let's start from clear. These are people executed. Executed. The way Rome executes testing. people is cutting off their heads. These people may well be beheaded in the future. At the least, it means executed. And it may entirely be that they're executed by beheading. So, uh, I, again, I, without going and working through Revelation, I wouldn't want right. to get dogmatic. It certainly well could mean literally beheaded. But yeah. for the Rome, for, but state execution in John's day was, was um, well, for citizens was beheading. For non-citizens, it could be all sorts of nasty things. So I would take it at the very least as people who've been executed for the testimony and may very well have been executed through execution. I mean, throughout the history, plenty of people have resorted to that, the guillotine, things like that. Mm-hmm. It crops up. So, yeah. Greg. Oh, Mike's coming up to Greg. I know you wanted us to limit our questions to uh, <clears throat> Luke, but you brought up Zechariah 14. So, yes. Um, Ante- no, let me pause. Luke and all antecedent scripture. Is Luke? Oh. No, 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 no. Because Luke is assuming the audience and the people Jesus is talking to, he's assuming, are familiar with all the antecedent Old Testament scriptures. That's all fair game. That's all, that's all fair game. Go for it. I, I'm, I still I'm, may punt, but I'm go for it. I'm pleased to know that. Um, <laughs> Zechariah fourteen sixteen, which you read a few moments ago. Yes. Uh, as I was reading it, I read on a little bit, and I was confused about something. It says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. Yes. I was under the impression that Armageddon was what triggered the new heaven and the, that we would go to heaven at that. We'd already be there, but the, essentially that would be the end of the earth. Uh, but this, unless that's symbolic or something, no, this there's suggests two, there's two that conf- there's, Let me pause. And I might have, the term Armageddon isn't in the text that we read. Um, the battle with Gog and Magog. There are two cataclysmic battles. One begins the kingdom and one ends the kingdom. So in Zechariah 14, we're specifically dealing with the return of the Lord. He sets his foot down on the earth and he sets up a kingdom. And the nations year after year go up and worship the Lord. And if they don't, King Jesus doesn't give them rain and other things. Um, so that battle where there's come the birds, come and eat the flesh of the kings and the princes and the horses, that is a cataclysmic judgment in battle. Then at the end of the thousand years, there's another rebellion. Uh, Satan's released and there's another battle and that destruction ends with the dissolution of the current creation and the new heavens and the new earth. So yes, there's two big big showdown battle events, if that makes any sense. Zechariah 14 is looking at the one that occurs at the return of the Lord, not at the end of the kingdom. So if anyone wants to add any clarity to that, who's studied this or is more precise, or if I'm speaking out of turn, let me know. So it's possible that Armageddon refers to, people by saying Armageddon refer to the second one, not the first. So I'll drop the term Armageddon. Zechariah is talking about the battle with Gog and Magog and Jerusalem's trouble, and so that I will say dogmatically. Um, but, but there are two big showdown events that happen. And Revelation's got both of them, because after um, what we saw with the him on the white horse showing up, there's Satan getting released and deceiving the nations, and then he fights. So, yes. Does that answer your question, or am I muddling things? Yeah, I think so. I'm just trying to put it all together. I mean, I know the... the uh 
the the thousand years occurs on Earth, so I didn't, I didn't mean to apply that it was all over. Okay, I hadn't really thought about uh, the fact that they would be doing some of these types of things during the the well, what, uh, millennium. If you, if you wonder what takes place during the millennium, as far as I can tell, um, all of okay. If you think of, and this is why to me, I mean, you don't hold a view because it's satisfying, but once you get convinced of a view, if you find it satisfying, it's a bonus. One of the one of the things that I find satisfying about this understanding of the future is how much of Israel's, how much of our Bible is made up of telling, setting up a law and a governance for a nation on earth, regulating the nation of Israel. Tons of it. I mean, I'd say you could argue at least half the Bible is devoted to a legal code that covers the religious, it covers the moral, and it covers civil, it, it here's a code for a country. How long did Israel at best keep that? How how long do we see this in effect working properly for? At best, David's reign and Solomon's reign. Because once Solomon's son, um, Jeroboam, or is it Rehoboam? I always get Jeroboam and Rehoboam confused. I think it's Rehoboam and Solomon's son. Um, Rehoboam splits the kingdom. Now we've got something the law doesn't even deal with, which is a split kingdom and an alternate worship site. So at best, at best, we get, I mean, and you think of the buildup with Moses. You're going to go to a land and here's going to be your law. You're going to go to, you're going to, go to this land and here's what God's going to do. And if you're faithful, he'll cause the, the rain and the crops. And if you're unfaithful, and they get there and for maybe 80 years, but we know Solomon's reign when he took on the wives and stuff, like it wasn't good all that long. And David reigned for about 40 years, like what, 40 to 60, 40 to 70 years at best. And then the rest of Israel's history is just bum king after, I mean, all the kings in the north are awful. Most of the kings in the south are awful. And then they get taken off in captivity. It just goes on, on this whimper. You know, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. It's so pathetic. So to know that there's going to come a time in the future where we are going to see this thing operating the way it was supposed to operate and with, with the, the David's son on his throne in Jerusalem where Psalm 2 gets lived on. We're going to get a thousand years of seeing this work, which is why things like the Feast of Booths are reinstituted because that's in the law of Moses. And the nation's going to go up year, you know, three times a year. You go to Jerusalem and you celebrate the feast and one of them is the Feast of Booths. So if you don't think that, then for all of this talk and all of this preparation of all of this law really only worked for about 40 to 60 years and then it was done and it's never to be repeated, put it away, we're moving forward. It is kind of anticlimactic. So part of what we're going to see in the millennium is the wisdom and the glory and the goodness of the law of Moses when it's received by a people of faith ruled by a just king functioning. And it's going to be wonderful. And then... The world is still going to revolt without the sac- <laughs> and fight back. Without the sacrifices. Well, no, I think this is, this is the part that's the roughest. According to Ezekiel and Ezekiel's temple, our men's group just went through Ezekiel. I've got to study more on this. Ezekiel's got sacrifices being offered in the millennial temple. That, and I will freely admit, that is the part that I have the hardest time. And, and the people who don't hold to this view, the guys who are what you call covenant theology, this is the biggest thing that they're going to push not like, and I get it. What do you mean more sacrifice? Well, Ezekiel, there's this temple. You go to read the last eight chapters of Ezekiel, no one is arguing this temple has ever been built. No one suggests Ezekiel's temple has ever been built. So you're left with two options with Ezekiel's temple. Either it's a spiritual temple describing the church in all of her glory, 
Now, the problem with that view is you read through those last eight chapters of Ezekiel, that level of specificity and dimensions and the doorposts and this lentil and this beam and this, it gets really difficult to spiritualize. I mean, you got to start asking questions like, well, what is this um, archway representing the church? What does this door frame represent in the church? And when you read Reformed commentaries on Ezekiel, they go nice and slow, and then they generally cover the last eight chapters in about 20 pages, because (laughs) what do you do with it? If you don't spiritualize Ezekiel's temple, then you've got to conclude it has never been built, and it will be built at some point in the future. If that's the case, that temple's got sacrifices. There's no way around that in Ezekiel. So then people who believe it's a literal temple like me have to say, what do we make of these sacrifices? And there's all sorts of suggestions. The, 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 the best one I'm aware of is their memorial. They're, they're done in the same way that we do a memorial picture of a sacrifice in the Lord's table. And we talked about how Rome thinks that really is a bloodless sacrifice. No, we don't think it is. But it's a symbol. It's, it's a memorial. It reminds us of his sacrifice, right? The thought would be in a similar vein. But I will freely admit that's the part that I have the hardest time with understanding. Um, but if you're to take Ezekiel's temple, you've got to take the sacrifices with it. You, you, I just, we just read through that in men's group a couple of months ago, and it's just blatantly there. Anyone have any suggestions on how to deal with the sacrifices in the Ezekiel's temple? Anybody? Anybody? Linda. Linda will, will set this straight. No, 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 no. I was just going to say that there are now people, yeah. priests, and... They got a red heifer. Yes, preparations being made oh, yeah. for this new temple to yeah. be built. They have the, all the things that are described, the elements, everything to be used. So they are preparing... You know, whether it's going to be Ezekiel's temple or not, I, I don't know. But the people right. that I listen to that have studied this for decades are, you know. It, it won't be Ezekiel's temple, but there needs to be a temple for, right. for the stuff in Revelation to take place. Right. Because the Antichrist has to go in and make himself God. And, and so Israel needs a temple for our, the way we read Revelation to play out, to play out. Right. Um, and you know, it is interesting that right now, and we have no idea whether the Lord's come back in our lifetime, in a hundred years, whatever. But right now, for the first time in a long time, there are people and accoutrements ready that they could conceivably build the temple and put one up very quickly. That doesn't mean they will. I want to be careful. You want to say, oh, he's coming tomorrow. But they just got a red heifer. Which is you can go to you can look at this online as a website Temple Org I think they genetically bred a red heifer Serena when she was there the golden lamp stands in the middle of a square in a thing surrounded by bulletproof glass they leave it there because it's so heavy solid gold lampstand mm-hmm. that no one could really take it away it's just sitting in the middle of a square you can see photos of this they've got all the stuff the brazen altar ready to go they've dedicated the cornerstone now nothing may come of that right that may but nothing may come of it. but what is interesting is. 30, 40 years ago, if you said, hey, is it, how quickly could they put together a temple? It would not nearly be as quickly as now. That may mean nothing, and but it is interesting. And there have been several red heifers that have been disqualified, yeah. you know, after yeah. they get old enough to, right. you know, because the markings go away right. and that sort right. of thing. But also, at the end of Psalm 51, it says that then... You know your sacrifices, so it seems like there. You know it doesn't make sense to us because we. I mean, you know, we know Jesus was the final sacrifice, and there doesn't need to be blood sacrifices anymore. But at the same time, 
I mean, his word's telling us, so. Yep. Well, no, the hardest part for me is the author of Hebrews doesn't just say that it's this, this is the final sacrifice, but he uses language of making obsolete, and when the reality comes, the shadow goes away. That's, that's the toughest stuff to get around. Is You read Hebrews, and it sure looks, as he's arguing, why are you going back to the temple? The reality's come, the shadow's no more. You know, um, well, except in the future when we'll bring out the shadows and memorial, apparently, or something like that. Um, so I, I'm just saying, I, you got to just, the text says it so okay, and I can't figure it out any other way, but I will freely admit that's the part that is least intuitive to me, and the part that I just have to, okay, Lord, yes, that, that, and I get why my covenantal Amil friends recoil at that, 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 that's the part that they're, no, I mean, when they, so you believe there's, the sacrifices aren't done, there's more sacrifices. I'm like, no, I, I get why you have trouble with that. I freely, freely get why that's um, difficult. And if the text wasn't really explicitly plain in Ezekiel, I'd be with you, but it is so, okay. Um, other, uh, Mike, you wanted to say something back there, right? Mike, microphone, a mic for Mike. And I don't know, you might want to punt on this, but um, current events, basically. Um, so USA is moving their embassy. Um, everybody over there is against the fact that we're going to name Jerusalem as the capital. Mm -hmm. Is is there anything in the Bible that, it, is this spoke about in the Bible? Is this something that has any connection biblically, or is this just politics? Maybe. What I, mean by maybe I guess is, I'm asking for your advice. What I mean is, your, I think we can, only, we can only tell with any certainty after it happens. I mean, if I was living during World War II, I'd probably think the persecution of the Jews might be something. It turned out it wasn't that. And I think if I was living in 70 AD, and Titus, not all the armies of the world, but the Roman army, surrounded Jerusalem and crucified thousands of Jews, I'd probably think, oh, this is it. And I think in world history, there's probably been many times where you could credibly look at what's going on and say, this is it, and no, it wasn't. So if Christ comes back, yes, this was it. Are there things like that? There are. And I, and I suspect in God's wisdom, history scattered that in a way to keep us ready. That there's, you know, it's always, in a sense, credible that the Messiah could come back, that Christ could come back soon. But I have no way of knowing if this is the real it yeah, because there's been so many this is it moments that really looked credible from where that moment sat. I mean, really, in 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed stone by stone and, and the Jews were crucified and scattered in the dispersion, I'm pretty sure most of those people thought, okay, this is it. Well, it wasn't. Um, so could the stuff that's going on now be it? It could be. <laughs> but until Christ returns, I won't know. Um, be re I mean, I just say be ready. <laughs> I, well, I just didn't know yeah. if there was some, yeah, yeah. a mention of the, no, I, and I'd be Jerusalem very, being put back to the yeah. as whole or whatever. Well, no, and I think it's pretty pretty significant that Israel's back on the land. I mean, bear in mind how small of a nation Israel is, and for the better part of two thousand years, Israel had no land anywhere. They were scattered among the nations. We don't have Babylonians left today. We don't have Medo-Persians left today. We don't have Canaanites left today. But here's these same people speaking the same language in the same piece of land with the same religion and everyone hates them who are their neighbors. How does that happen? So, and again, Israel, for all I know, could get dispersed again. But one would think something like what happened in the 1940s would have to take place in order for the events of Revelation to happen. 
So I, I, you know, I, I think it's, it's prudent to be cautious, but you look at some of those things and you pay attention. Like, this is interesting. <laughs> I wonder where this is going. Certainly plenty, no, certainly plenty of what's going on is doing that. Yeah. But if, if the Lord himself doesn't know the day or the hour, then I want to be, and you're not saying this, but I want to be very, I forget, be very calm. I do not want to claim to know more than Jesus. And so people that are like, you know, 82 reasons why Jesus is returning in 82. Well, I met one guy. What was it he said? We can't know the day of the hour, but I know the month. <laughs> That's what he said to me. I was like, oh, clever. Okay. Get a prize. Um, so, so, yes. I mean, and again, isn't it interesting that where is the center of like world politi- political activity and wars and rumors of wars? Oh, the same little center of space that all the action's taken place on the stage since day one. That's interesting, you know? Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know what to make of it, but it's certainly interesting. Well, it's, it's like they're all saying no, no, and like, like it matters where we put our embassy. Like they have to follow the suit. They're acting like if we claim it a capital, it has to be like, mm-hmm. which is, is, I mean, I'm surprised they don't just say, well, we're not even going to accept that. But it seems like they're, they're taking the stance that they have to accept it also, which is yeah. upsetting all of them, actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it is their capital. It is, well, uh, I mean, just the only thing that's happening right now is the United States is is recognizing what they've already claimed. Right. I mean, Israel says this is our capital. Yeah. So the, the Palestinians, the, the Syrians, all of those people that are angry at us, it, they're simply angry at us for agreeing. Mm-hmm. That's all. Well, they no don't no other country Israel's... has the right to establish some other country's capital. Right. And they that's don't... not what's happened. Yeah, Israel's neighbors don't rec- Most of Israel's neighbors, if not all of them, do not recognize Israel as a nation. They, they view Israel the way we view ISIS, the Islamic State. We don't recognize Islamic State as a nation. You know, we don't recognize them as a geopolitical entity. Well, Israel's neighbors don't recognize Israel as a nation. So, and because the Islam has holy places in Jerusalem, they are particularly offended at the notion of it, Jerusalem being the capital. So, yeah, it's, I think the people who are upset are simply upset because they fear this will be a provocation to Islam that will result in violence. That's most of the, I haven't read much on it, but I think that's most of the, oh no, is now you've done it, now there's going to be blood at Christmas because the Muslims are going to, you know, they're going to freak out. Maybe they will, maybe they won't, I don't know. But most of what I've read of the, you know, the skies falling is, you know, our president, according to them, has, you know, taken a stick and stuffed it into a hornet's nest. Why can't you leave things be? Um, But... I don't know what'll happen. I'm neither the prophet nor the son of a prophet, and I work for a nonprofit. <laughs> okay. Um. I, I would just add to not only do they not believe that there's a country of Israel while in Iraq, if you look at a world map, there's no country of Israel. So again, I don't know why <laughs> why they care what the capital is. If you look at their map, it does not exist. Right. That you will not find the word Israel on a world map in Iraq. Right. Right. Indeed. We have five minutes. Linda. Well, as much turmoil as that caused this week, I think the thing that bothered me more was the Pope deciding he wanted to change some words in the Bible. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, crazy you know. Coke. And so, you know, I mean, I just saw that and I was like, I mean, who, you know, I, you don't know what to say almost, but at the same time, it's like, who do you think you are? You don't get to say that. You, you he's just, the vicar of well, I know that, but I'm just, I mean, to me, that's a more. <laughs> Oh, look, the Canaanites are acting like Canaanites. <laughs> yeah, no, I, no I, got, I got you, Linda. I got you. Know you know what I'm saying? No, I, I completely mean, know. I, you know, there's always... Well, what, can you... You got the mic. What's the change? I read a little bit about it, but what's okay, the change? Okay, so he wants to change the wording of the Lord's Prayer, which in, in, that's a whole other discussion because it's not. It's a disciple's yeah. prayer. But anyway, so he wants to change the wording to make it a little more... PC. I don't really know what the word is, but he just he wants to change the our father especially the you know so that it encompasses everyone basically because you know he's all about you know everyone's equal everyone you know blah 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 right right so but just the fact that was he, it like our parents <laughs> just like the fact that he is stating that that he just wants to oh I have the you know authority to change. God's word. Yeah, it was. Yeah, because it, he was saying that it was impo implying that God was leading us. Right, that yeah. God was the one who yeah. causes us to sin versus yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's messing around with wanting to change the wording to the disciples' prayer. So, and I saw yeah. there was like a translation. So I don't know if you can. He wants to retranslate, but they're basing their translation. Well, I think they might still be using the Vulgate. I'm not sure if they actually go back to. Well, they might use it. Anyway, we have five minutes. I want to cover one thing and then be done. Let's try to get some practical. Uh, last week I talked about the now and not yet kingdom, and that notion of now not yet is shows up a lot in the New Testament, especially in Pauline theology. So, is the let me give you an example in my now not yet. It's kind of like. Well, the Holy Spirit is a perfect example. The Holy Spirit is, this, is the guarantor of the inheritance to come. So God gives us some of the inheritance now as the proof and the certainty and the seal that the full payment's coming later. Like, you know, when you, you buy something, you put a deposit down and the rest is coming. That's the now, not yet. So to use an example, is the old man, is the flesh dead, crucified with Christ? Yes? Simple questions. Yes? Are we to put the flesh to death, though? Yes. So is the flesh dead or do we have to kill the flesh? Yes. Now and not yet. In principle, the flesh is dead. Go kill it. And so a lot of Paul's theology, in fact, there's a women's Bible study that meets on Monday mornings that apparently in a happy providence was covering this very topic in a chapter, that a lot of Paul's instruction in the New Testament is be who you are. Your saints called to be saints, go act like it. So you can read, you've been glorified, go act like it, now and not yet. There's, there's a sense in which it's present, there's a sense in which it's to come, live that way. And so that now not yet crops up in a lot of places that, that we have, I mean, people do get healed. Now death will be done away with and, and there will be no more disease. But sometimes now, and we can pray for and ask for God to heal, right? So there's, there's some samplings of the blessings of the kingdom present, but not like it will be. And so that now and not yet, which was what I was trying to deal with last week when I ran out of time, I forgot that last week was communion, so I had about 10 more minutes of material than we ended up having. Um, and uh, 
is, is, is a huge thing for the tension we live in. We live in the now, not yet. We live in that time period where David, I, I really like the picture of David running around. He is king in, in Israel. He's been anointed king by Samuel. And there is a group of people who recognize him as king and follow him. Yet the God of this world, Satan, walks around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. And Saul, even though he's been deposed as king, is still the functional or titular king. He's the de facto king, and he's ruling and putting people to death and doing things. And, and eventually, David twice cut garments, piece of his garment, and he didn't dare take, strike out his hand against the Lord's anointed. Saul was the Lord's anointed. The Lord will deal with you. Likewise, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. Jesus is waiting for his father's timetable to smash his enemies. And so that's the time place we're living in. And so we're living in this world where we can recognize David's greater son as king and we can follow him as his little band of merry men or we can follow and march foot and step to Saul, the god of this world. And, and that, that's the world we live in right now. That's the time period we live in now. And there's going to come a day where David's greater son is going to war with Saul and the seed of the serpent. And <laughs> But Jesus' whole point in our passage this morning is if you wait till that day, it's going to be too late. You want to pick a team and stick with it um, before that time comes. So that's, that's I just wanted to, I didn't feel like I sufficiently dealt with that last week, and I wanted to cover that a bit more now. But we are at time. God bless. See you next week for the uh, cantata, right? Next week's the cantata? Yeah. All right. And the children's musical. God bless. <laughs>